The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. From the Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. This is Genre. We're reading genre classics and pulp gold, and we watch the occasional blockbuster too. Right now, we are reading the entire Dune series. It's a bit of a switch up for us. This week, Dune by Frank Herbert. I'm Bob. I'm interested in cowboys, stories, mysteries, Mike Hammer, and strange themes. I'm John. I'm interested in the way genre fiction explores the tension between the trope a character embodies and the unique individual behind it. I'm Zach. I'm interested in stories that piggyback on the science and politics of their time. Stories that give you a little glimpse of what people were thinking about at their moment. All right, Dune. I feel like we're really on a big journey here. This is episode one of us trying to read the whole series. I don't think we've ever done this before. Have we tried to read a whole series of anything before? No, no, I don't think we, we've gotten to book two. Like for my camera, we're on book two. And I think... Read a few Sherlock Holmes, but never the entire series. Yeah, we did. Uh, we got to book two of uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, detective stories, as well as I think we did the second Bond novel too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, good point. Okay, we've done a few. We've done a few. But man, I, I stacked all these Dune books up I bought the the paperbacks, stacked them all up. It's over a foot high. Oh, yeah. Like it is, <laughs> it is an incredible amount of material. It is a lot of book. I know, and he has like he has like a dozen other books. I haven't read any of them, but uh, I'd like to. You know, hmm. I have a feeling they're uh, pulpier. Yeah, maybe his appendixes, appendices are a little pulpy. I, but the pulpy, I bet, would be really fun because these are like literary masterworks. Even his pulp, I bet, would be gold. This is quite a bit higher stuff than the Isaac Asimov. That's a bold place to start. Higher, higher stuff than Isaac Asimov. So <laughs> what, <laughs> what makes Dune different than the other books we've read? Uh, why does it feel that way? Or does it just feel like more of the same? What's going on with this? There's something about Dune just feels so, so important the whole time reading it. I feel like the character Paul, Moed or Paul Atreides is written to be a very important person, obviously, but throughout the whole narrative, all of his importance happens in every situation he does. And there's also something that just feels important about the writing. Uh, some of the cyberpunk stuff that we we're reading seemed like the authors were really trying to discover something or solve something, try to get through, get get an idea through to its fullest extent. And I think that's happening here in Dune too. Some of the other genre stuff definitely does that, but then some feels when it is more like pulp yeah. or an adventure or just fun, there feels like there's less at stake for the author. I would say there's there's two books that we've read that, that come to mind for me as like being comparative to this, both in terms of their genre and also in their content. One of those I would say would be uh, Deus Irae by Philip K. Dick. This idea of kind of like a, a, a almost post-apocalyptic like desert uh, well, literally post-apocalyptic there, but there's something almost post-apocalyptic feeling about June, like, you know, this sense that some, in some time in the past has been a difference. And I know that's part of the law um, that's not really explored that much in this book. Um, and this idea of a prophet that is, has arisen and mm. people are not sure if he's real or not, and like people are, whether he's the real thing or not. And quite a lot of violence and strange creatures in there as well. Like there's the, obviously enormous Shai Hulud, the, the sandworms in this book. And mm. I think there was a similar type creature. Even I think it was actually even a worm in yeah. uh, Deus Irae. That one was more worm-like, though. <laughs> it's complained. Kill me! That was more of a worm-worm rather than like a, a sand yeah. god. But like, you know, yeah. that's still comparative. And I would say... That was one of my favorite, all-time favorite characters in science yeah. fiction. That that's a great book. That's a great book. 
I would also say another book that reminds me of a little bit is um, John Wyndham's uh, Day of the uh, Day of the, is it the Chrysalids? Day of the Chrysalids? Oh, it's the Chrys- It's just the Chrysalids. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, Day of Triffids and the Chrysalids. And yeah, so it remembers rem- reminds me of John Wyndham's The Chrysalids. You know, this idea of like mind connection and people being in each other's minds, hmm. which we get here with like Aaliyah even being in um, Paul's mind at the end. And Paul being able to get into other people's mm. minds and just people being able to use voice control to, you know, dictate the minds of other people. So I'd say that's another sort of theme as well. Mm. So, it, you know, it's certainly not unique in many of its ideas, but it, it does uh, really combine them in a very unique way. I think that, like, it's not really too recognizable to anything else I've seen. Like, it is truly unique, mm. I think. So Bob was talking about the the importance and you were talking, you know, a little bit about the unique combination. I have to wonder if the word we might need is relevance so Hmm. like if you think about like something like isaac asimov uh he's talking about you know what is the effect of you know the introduction of robots into society and he you know he takes just this one factor and turns it into an unknown this one factor that we have in everyday life machines and turns it into an unknown factor like oh imagine if robots were now part of everyday life and you couldn't really tell them apart what kind of society, what kind of story could we tell in that world? Um, with Dune, there's so many different unknown factors that kind of like take us away from the everyday uh, regular world that we live in and inhabit mm. as the readers. You know, like we're in space. Uh, there's giant worms, for example. But some of those factors that we're talking about, such as like uh, terraforming, turning desert you know, stopping des- uh, desertification, desertification. I don't <laughs> yeah, know und- the emphasis on undesertifying that. Desertification. Yeah. desertification. Yeah. Like those are questions that I think are not commonly talked about in science fiction, or at least maybe at the time Frank Herbert was writing, you know, we weren't oh, talking yeah. about how to change the entire ecology of planets, mm. but they were relevant in the sixties and they're probably even more relevant now. Yeah, I mean, the book has obviously had a continued like success and popularity. In fact, it's just continued to become more popular over the years. Um, and I think, yeah, part of that is, like you said, relevance. I think books have, pre- I think it's maybe brought about a sea change because lots of the books that we're reading that are pre-Dune, pre-1963, or sorry, 1965, seem a little bit shorter, seem to be one idea being explored. I think when we talked about an Avram Davidson story, uh, we talked about, oh yeah, Zach, you said the idea of science fiction is having uh, one idea that isn't true and making that the premise, which is then explored over the course of a novel. And I think that maybe that was lots of science fiction books before. And now I think they are like, there's all of the, there's the Mars trilogy uh, that is all about terraforming. There's um, like three body problem. They're, they're much more expansive. And um, I think that Dune really started this kind of, what is it called? Space opera genre. So, so lots of these science fiction books are now space operas. God, you know, if I was going to try to, I, I was thinking, let's talk about the plot of Dune, but that's like trying to take a bite out of like a. Like, <laughs> Maybe like, we can. For most books, that's taking a bite out of an apple. This is like trying to take a bite out of a pumpkin or something you know it's too big i don't even know where to start <laughs> so i guess maybe we can start with like the, the story of paul All right paul atreides son of Juleto, heir to the throne of the house of house atreides and then house atreides is given this planet june i mean i'm sure a lot of people know the story so we probably shouldn't spend too long on this um 
and then essentially it turns out they've been stitched up by this rival house and even the emperor himself and most of them are obliterated so paul ends up wandering in the desert with his mother inhaling the desert spice the spice melange which is given in these visions of the future in which he sees himself um leading a jihad against uh, the emperor i think if i understand correctly <laughs> And then the book, I feel like, is kind of like, if he is the hero of the book, this sense of him um, really discovering himself and sort of fulfilling his mission. And there's almost a kind of like an Oedipus-type like quality to his character where he has a prophecy for the future that he's constantly trying to avoid, but in his attempts to avoid it, he only gets more deeply ensnared in his own, in his own fate, in a way, in his own destiny. Um, so that's sort of a, a, what I see to be like, if there is a single thread like throughout the book, I would say it has to be Paul Atreides' story. Mm-hmm. sure it it does feel um like i feel like it's very easy just to say oh yes the classic hero's journey but i think that i mean maybe this becomes more obvious looking outside of the book and the general discourse around it but uh it's not exactly just a hero's journey or at least if it is a hero's journey it's a very self-aware yeah. rendering of the hero's journey like it doesn't feel like oh he just happened to stumble upon this it felt it feels like uh frank set out to write a hero's journey and place it on top of you know this other massive world that he already has going if that makes sense like it feels like a literary construction well i think like to me like when I, when i think of um, paul's journey in this book the 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 like the literary um or like cinematic in this case but kind of literary it comes from a book parallel that I come to is Michael Corleone in the Godfather series, in the Godfather trilogy, you know, where in, in the first Godfather movie, Michael Corleone, Al Pacino's character is, you know, he's, he's been to, he's been educated, he's gone to university, he's been in the army, he's achieved like a, a, a lot of like social respectability, while the rest of his class, his family have just been gangsters, mobsters, members of the mafia. And then his father takes ill and Michael being the most talented and smart member of the family sort of takes over as the new godfather by the end of the book. And to do this, he has to commit some quite like essentially kind of like, you know, warfare on the streets, like not not guerrilla warfare necessarily, but he's got to go out and kill people. He's got to get, go out and get his hands dirty and really get involved in the criminal life, show he's up to it. And then he achieves it. He becomes the godfather. They destroy all of the rival families essentially, or wipe out rivals and establish himself as the, the, the big fish in that pond again. And then you see at the end of the, the film that he's kind of no longer got that heroic like glow about him, but now he's sort of turned bitter a little bit. He's turned cruel. He's really hmm. become a very different person. He's become a, a tyrannical, violent godfather from having been a relatively like nice and moral character hmm. at the beginning. And there's a sense in which Paul has done the same because by the end of this book, he actually, like, they, when once he's accomplished, you know, successfully uh, defeated, like, the Emperor and the Sardaukar with the this coup, he is then turned bitter and he's losing the friends around him because all his friends become followers, he says. And he becomes this absolute power. And in doing that, he sort of loses quite a lot and starts treating people relatively badly. I think that's kind of how the story really ends. So I thought that's that's kind of what I thought of as like his hero's journey. It seems like a hero's journey, but at the end it sort of really turns sour. So it's not a simple hero's journey by any yeah. means. Well, I think it also undercuts the hero's journey, not in a thematic sense, but in a storytelling sense, by having uh, this kind of metatextual commentary 
at the start of every chapter. So we have quotes from something mm. called like the Book of Muad'Dib or the Life of Muad'Dib. Well, yeah, there's all sorts of different books. It's not just one book, is it? But all of the books are by Princess Erlan. That's the common thread. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we have these, we, we have this sense of... Who we do eventually meet at the end of the book. Yeah, yes, this is true. We have, we have this sense of not only is this hero's journey taking place in a larger world that it's not always concerned with the hero's journey, like it's a, it's a, it's a large landscape in the text, but we're also reading a text which is one among many other texts in which this story is told. So there's this kind of like ballooning out, but those texts comment on the story in a way that spoils the ending for us. And not only spoils the ending, but I think spoils pretty much every step along the way. So before we find out Yui is the traitor, we're told Yui is the traitor two or three times. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Like there's almost every beat of this story is is um, undercut. By by this kind of metatextual thing going on. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the way the way you say that, like um, the sort of the beat of the story is constantly being undercut. I was actually listening to a, a like an in depth like hour long interview with Frank Herbert on YouTube with some English professor back in the sixties, and he's talking about how he came to the, the, the idea of writing the book Jew and what he was thinking when he was writing it and so forth. And he said that when he was writing the book, he was thinking about like the rhythm of the sentence. He said he wanted to be it to be read. He saw language as like an oral method and he wanted the book to be read. So he wrote it with a kind of rhythm to be read. But it wasn't just rhythm on like a sentence level, in which apparently even hid like haikus in the text, which I think would be cool to try and find. Um, but also this idea of like a long-term rhythm, he said, was two things he was talking about in terms of like controlling the pace of the book. And one of them he really touched on, which actually was probably like what I find most frustrating about reading this book, is this idea that he's deliberately chopped the story at what he calls non-breaking points. So the reader like skids out of the story <laughs> in his words. And he says to the interviewer, he knows he was successful in this. I would agree. Because um, it has this sort of quality in which you'll be, you'll be reading a story and then the story will just sort of end. We'll go into another chapter. And then the next chapter is like two years later. And there's no connection between that oh, event yeah. and the previous yeah. event. And it's just like, it's very weird, the rhythm to the story that sort of constantly kept like taking me out of the story. And then, so it's interesting when I came through yeah. with this interview with Frank Herbert, it was like, I did that deliberately. It's like, for me, I found it quite frustrating, but I, yeah, it's just, you mentioned the rhythm of the story there, Zach, and I thought it was very interesting what like the author himself says about this idea of the rhythm of the story. I mean, he wants it, his idea is that he said there's like, he wants his story to like spark the imagination. So he, he used the example of Treasure Island, interestingly enough. Oh, oh that's cool. funny. He says like when he was a child. He says, he says, like, I've written, written down a quote here. He says, as children, we can remember playing Treasure Island, Frank Herbert says. The characters stay with us and it kind of uh, sparks, uh, kindles sparks in our own imagination that then went on continuing the story themselves. And he wants people to go out and create stories on this basis. So it's almost like he'll, he'll give you a nugget of information about this world he's building, constantly like world building. And then he'll like cut it off. He's like, all right, you, in your imagination, what happens next, what happens next? Hmm. So to me, the most obvious example is like Paul Atreides has a son we hear <laughs> that's like born off screen. And then it's like, all oh, right, great, I've got a son. And then like one or two scenes later, he gets a message. Oh, your son's dead, my lord. <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah. I felt the grief. To, you know, I didn't know how to grieve. I was this and that, shots. And he's like, bro, you've never held your child once in this entire oh. book. I want a cop out. <laughs> You can't, yeah. you can't just introduce a child in order to kill a child to give your main character grief. Yeah. Um, 
Now, I don't know. So I guess this is a controversial issue. Is that because chopping a story at non-breaking points, you can use imagination or is it just lazy story writing? I have, I constantly, uh, I'm on the fence about this when I'm reading June, being honest with you. So, so I, I like the, like the three part question that you ask yourself, you know, like, is he in control of, of these breaking points? Is he lazy? You know, but the, the thing that unifies all that is the level of control of the artist. So like the question is, is Frank lazy? Is Frank in control? Does Frank know what he's doing here? Or is he just a shoddy craftsman? And I feel like this book more than more than any other book I think that we've read, I'm constantly thinking about Frank, like as an individual, hmm. as a writer, as a thinker. I think most other books I, I kind of get lost in the world. Like mm. so for example, if we're reading a James Bond novel, I don't say wow ian fleming you did it again you know i think i think about the character of james bond this book i'm i'm only thinking about frank there's no like (laughs) paul is is paul i have no connection to paul but in a weird sense i feel like i have a connection to frank well i think that's it there's something where almost like you're being taken out of the story you're constantly taking like a more analytical, critical view of what's happening rather than actually feeling like you're absorbed in that story because it never really lets you in, in my, in my, is my view of it. You're also on the outside looking in, which is, you know, I wonder if that's maybe the point that maybe... Yeah. I mean, I always think I enjoy June more after having read it than when I'm reading it. That's kind of like my take on June. Whereas I'll be reading it, I'll find it frustrating. I'll be like, this is wooden. I was like, all right, well, that doesn't make, why is this happening? I, I don't see what, like, precedent for this, for this. Why is this random character, like, been introduced and then not mentioned again for the rest of the book until, like, right at the end in the final chapter? And, but then after I've read the story, I'm like, I can't wait to get back to that world of, like, oh, I wonder who the Bene what's going on with the Bene Gesserit? Oh, I love this idea of, like, Paul's um, sort of seeing the future and living a thousand lives. Like, that's a very fascinating idea to ponder. So after I've read the story, I love pondering, like, what could be the, the significance of the Shai Halud? You know, what, what does that mean in the story? But then when I'm reading the story, I find it frustrating. So I almost feel like this book creates an amazing world, but I just, I'm very, like, unconvinced when it comes to the actual, like, mm. nitty-gritty of the, the, the plot sequencing. That's fair. I found to myself completely lost in the world constantly while reading it and while not reading it. I feel like, even though... The whole way through is entertaining, no matter what's happening in the plot. But I do feel that there are intentional little breaks um, to put Paul under the microscope, to put other characters under the microscope as well. But I think a big part of the book is like how to govern, how to lead. Paul is a leader. Yes, he does things that we find extremely disturbing. For instance, uh, it could be legend. It could be real. Ordering his enemies to be skinned and turned into drums his war drums to be beaten. That's pretty disturbing. What kind yeah. of good uh, moral person does that? But he considers himself moral. Everyone comments on him as moral. And I think that there are these invitations by using different characters, not just the Princess Irulan and the plot pacing, but also uh, different other characters like Idaho or like Stilgar, these characters who are always around Paul and analyzing what Paul's doing. Paul also thinking back to himself, talking with his mother and working on um, doing things in the right way, avoiding mistakes, trying to fix things, and just doing what it takes to lead a whole people into a jihad even, which he, like you said, he's trying to avoid, but there's no way he can't avoid it. It's already like steamrolling him. Future, the history is already going in that direction. He just has to figure out how to be the proper leader of it. Even the world building itself follows Paul sometimes. I feel like th- this is 
with the prophecies about Paul, there is like a fantasy within this fantasy because there's all of these things that are just rising up to meet Paul's leadership. For instance, the first time he rides a worm, a big worm, it's bigger than anyone has ever seen in the entire written histories of Dune. Like the odds of that are not good, you know, but they say it's twice as big as any worm that has ever gone through the desert. That's what they all say. <laughs> then the, the moment at the end when it's the storm, after his son dies, he says, this is my storm, and it's another record-breaking storm. I think that there's like Paul being having this prophecy behind him, but also he almost has control of the book. I know we're talking about Frank being in complete control of the book, but I feel like often Paul has realities coming up to meet him in his leadership through the huge feats. Well, Paul does have one major blind spot, though, hmm. which I think is a very another, another fascinating aspect of his character. Uh, that blind spot being that he can never see the moment of his own death. Yeah, yeah. And he never has any, and connectedly, he never has any visions of this guy, Count Fenring. Yeah. Now, the eunuch. I, I'm, you know, you guys are way better, uh, more up on Dune than me, but I thought Count Fenring is a very interesting character. Like, yeah. what's going on with Count Fenring? He's a genetic eunuch. What does that even mean? Also, the way he talks, the way he's written in the book, there's so many hum, hum, hum. Um, um, sending like messages to his wife. Yeah. But his wife's like, it's interesting because he's a eunuch, but his wife, by looks by you know by the description of the book, is like a very attractive lady. So I wonder what's going on there as well. There's all sorts of peculiarity going. Yeah, Count Fenring always almost reminds me of like a a, a Smiley, you know, from the John Le Carre books. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good comparison. I like Smiley, and I like Count Fenring. Um, I I have the unfortunate uh, I'm I'm cursed with the knowledge of reading uh, the Dune extended universe books. Uh, which go into great, great detail about Count Fenring because, like, this is this is all we get for Count Fenring as far as I'm as far as I'm aware in the main Dune series. So we're kind really? of so we're kind of I mean Just two I, appearances. He turns up. I I could be wrong. You know, it's it, maybe I'll be proved wrong, but I think that this is pretty much it. And it's like we're given this really. We're given this character it's an incredibly that deep character has a uh, a method, you know, like a way of talking to other people yeah. that makes him some, seem meek, a way of talking to his wife that makes him seem incredibly intelligent and devious, a relationship with his wife who is, you know, uh, extremely attractive and is now uh, like he they they are using their position. Yeah. You know, she's she's going to sleep with yeah. Fade Rautha, yeah. was it? Mm hmm. Fedrotha. Yeah, so like yeah, like they 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 are um pure cynics of the story hmm. in terms of the like they are the purest distillation of the kind of cynical yeah. political conniving that the world hmm. of Dune kind yeah. of kind of gives us. Uh all these other characters kind of come with their own morality and worldview. Well, uh bits of culture that overlay the cynicism, but Fenring is just the pure cynicism. And he's fascinating to watch. Well, is he pure cynicism though? Because then at the, right at the end of the story, he, you know, decides to pardon Paul ultimately because he could have killed him. Yeah. Um, and he defies the emperor's orders to to fight and kill Paul uh, Mordeeb or Paul Atreides. Um, but he goes against the emperor's wish there, despite being called the emperor's right-hand man earlier in the book. Well, I saw that as still cynicism. If he was a romantic, he would have said, the emperor owes me X, Y, Z. The emperor has granted me my position. I will do this thing for the emperor because the emperor asks me. But instead he says, 
Well, I see which way the wind is blowing. So <laughs> I guess I'm going to disobey the emperor at the crucial moment. But it says in the book that he could have killed Paul Atreides. So it's like, I mean, could have. Why not? I don't know. I, I took it as less of a certainty and more of a roll of the dice. If that makes sense. But I, I don't know. That's a that's a fair question. That's a fair question. I really don't understand Finring. I, yeah, it says that he's going to kill him. He could kill him. It's, it's interesting. In that scene, it's like the most powerful people in the universe, all in a room. And Paul is the unkillable. But then Finring does admit through the narrator, he is the only person that could kill him and he could do it. I, I think it wouldn't be a roll of the dice. It'd be pretty certain. But I really do not understand Fenring and what his role is. And he's very mysterious throughout. I have no idea what his function is. He could have been a great foil to Paul because they were both supposed to be the Kwisat. Kwisatz Haderach. Thank you. So they were both supposed to be that, but he's a failed one, Fenring, for some reason. He just wasn't strong enough, wasn't powerful enough. And so he is... Well, I think it's because he can't pass on his genetic line. That's the issue, isn't it? Oh, yeah, because it's all breeding. That's true. So if he's a... But why would they train him if he's a born eunuch? I don't know why. What does this term genetic unit mean? I don't know. But Fade Ralpha is the anti-Paul. He is a successful Kwisak Haderach candidate. Oh, because they want to breed through him? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the sense of, like, he's another product of this, you know, millennia-long breeding program. So, uh, you know, when they say like, oh, we, we like, I'm trying to remember the exact moment. I didn't write down the quote, but, you know, they think Paul is dead mm-hmm. after the, the events that happen on the planet. Uh, but they have hope for another, like there's another person who could take on the role of Kwisak Haderach from the perspective of the, the Bene Gesserit. And that person is Fade Ralta. Yeah, Fenring's wife will breed with Fade Ralta. Oh, yeah, because then, yeah, because Fade Ralta was supposed to be the... Or at least as a candidate for it. He was supposed to be the father of the Kwisatz Haderach. Like, just as Paul was. With the daughter of Lady Jessica, with Aaliyah, in a way. Well, with Aaliyah, so I guess that's probably a potential future Mm. plot point. Oh, no, they killed killed Fade Ralta. Yeah. Sandworm tooth straight to the brain, if I recall. Up through the jaw, yeah. You know, I love that. When when I got to write to the end of this book and I, then I realized it was going to finish with a sword fight, I was so excited. I was like, yes. That yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's end this with a sword fight. Why the hell not? Yeah. I like the sword fight too. I was wondering, it seems very Hamlet, but it definitely has the same kind of end, except it's not tragic and it's not someone who can't make up their mind. It's someone who makes up their mind constantly uh, and maybe goes too far. But both end in a sword fight. And I wonder... Is Frank experimenting with someone who uh, does have great loss? You know, father who's betrayed, same with Hamlet, but then actually makes decisions, actually moves. Uh, just thematically, it seemed nice to put that sword fight at the end. Like, let's let's think of what he could have done. He could have had a gun fight, for example. And, and I, I think that having a sword fight really ties the kind of... Like, it's it's just a small, simple thing, but it makes the story feel more classic, hmm. more old, more traditional than a gunfight would. Oh, yeah. I kind of want to talk about the the mystical stuff that goes on here. Like, I feel like it's very hmm. um, acceptable in, like, you know, a kind of hypothetical respected circle to talk about, like, oh, yeah, the, you know, the ecology sci-fi of Dune. Oh, Frank Herbert is a master of talking about you know, he, he brings in real world knowledge to this 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 ecology of Dune. But there's all this other stuff playing here in Dune that is much more San Francisco 1960s, I guess I would say, such as um, 
oh one example would be like this kind of mental tapping into like a genetic knowledge so like once he becomes Mm. this entity he can now live the lives of people who he is connected to through his genes giving him more power and drawing upon their knowledge to create make decisions in the present um and then from that he can also predict the future though this kind of comes with strings attached to it in the sense of it doesn't always work and it's not really it's not really magic it's more so like uh crunching numbers and then on top of that he's able to use his mind to actually change the molecular composition of compounds that are in his body so those are three things there's probably there's probably more but these are um i think there's no way to present these things without mentioning that they're just weird they're weird things to include in this book yeah it's interesting to have all of these things overlapping or you know i guess you could get away with writing a book where you just have the mentats you know people who can use their brains like computers after computers are no longer as useful as we thought but we have the mentats we have the benny jesseret we have the spice drugs and we have new things that no one's ever seen before he's really yeah. throwing everything into this well i mean the shy halud of course as well have like a mystical element i, to I think the uh hmm. the guild uh i forget exactly what their people are called but the um the pilots of the guild like th- there could have been a whole book hmm. about that huh. the the ones who spend their entire lives inside of tanks full of spice and are just these monsters. So what's going on with the Spacing Guild as well? I feel like they're never really explained. What's, what's going on with what? The Spacing Guild. Who are these guys? Who are they indeed? Is it is it even talked about in this book? It's because it's just they're sort of just introduced in the book, and they're sort of vaguely affiliated with Chone Company, but and the Emperor, but no, nothing's really explained very clearly. They just kind of get destroyed by the Fremen, yeah. like um, Fadaikin army. I can't remember who asks, but they ask about the guild members and they say, do they try and hide from people's eyes because they're so mutant? Uh, so something does look strange about them. Well, they have, they have like, they were, they were all gray and they were contact lenses. When they pull the contact lenses out, the yeah. eyes are like blue in the Fremens. Fremens. So I'm like, they must be on the spice as they're well. They're on the spice. Yeah. So th- there's, there's a couple, as far as I understand, there's a couple people or types of people who are part of the guild. One of which is the ones who are like out and walking around. They're the ones who are wearing the uh-huh. contact lenses to cover up the fact that they're so on the spice. Um, and they're kind of like agents of the guild. But then there's also mm. the guild pilots. In the rules of the universe, the pilots, in, or- in order to travel from one point to another in space, it's such a risky thing that the pilots need to be on massive doses of spice in order to calculate the best route. And not get hit with, you know, hmm. asteroids or debris or something to, to safely get it from one place to another. I believe this is oh. talked about in the appendices. It's certainly talked about at other points in other books. But these people are living inside these tanks, bathing in the spice hmm. in order to do this. And they become sort of mutant fish people. But that I, I also think that that isn't really talked about in this book. It's it's. It's there, but it's not called attention to. There are several things in this book that are there, but not called attention to, but then picked up later. An easy example is they kill... Baron Harkonnen kills Piter de Vries. And he says, 
oh, I need to talk to the Tleilaxu and get myself a new Mentat. And that's all he says. He never gets himself a new Mentat. We never meet the Tleilaxu. It's just a little bookmark placed in the text, which Frank can then go back later mm. and spin out an entire story on in the future. So is that is is this common practice or is this quite innovative? I know Tolkien gets accused of something similar as well. I think Tolkien is a good comparison point for for Frank, but I don't know. I I honestly couldn't say. So maybe today it's common practice. This is something that I feel like you pick up a book on writing and people say, oh, yeah, like first write your world and then write your story, you know, so that you have the ability to create these kind of bookmarks into other Mm -hmm. things that you haven't talked about. But at the time, when I think of pre-1960s science fiction, they're they're pretty um, straightforward. There's not a lot of meandering. There's not a lot of expectation that we're going to be... Mm creating more volumes you know you know what it does remind me of which is probably an unfair comparison but uh when we read the king arthur stories but that's because there's a whole legacy already about king arthur and people have written about it and written about it and written about it so when you're picking it up you are just starting your story because the world's already there but here frank has had to create the whole world on his own so it's a similar experience but for the for the writer for similar experience for the reader but for the writer very different side side note um in the afterward of this story written by brian herbert his son he connects the depiction of the arakan sandworms with beowulf's depiction of dragons oh so they are uh monstrous creatures that are guarding a you know a priceless treasure tolkien uses the same vision of the dragon too especially in something like uh, the hobbit you know the, the the dragon is guarding the treasure inside of the mountain um, but then also the way Frank writes the sandworms is kind of like exhaling cinnamon essence from its breath, you know, uh, oh, yeah. you know, and that air traveling between its sharp razor sharp teeth. Um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting how we can have these echoes. King mm-hmm. Arthur, like you said, Bob, or like Brian Herbert says, uh, Beowulf, these echoes of uh myth i mean and the myth is a very interesting theme in this book isn't it that maybe we need to talk about um because there's a kind of very um postmodern view of of myth to this whereby it's something that's been deliberately created by the bene Gesserit as a kind of story to pave the way for them eventually thousands of generations later to create this this quizats haderach that they're all working towards so they constantly sow myth in apparently the places where they most want to stay in control or will need to take total control if necessary. But then it's interesting because you see that's the larger level view, but on the more um, local level, this means that in each CH, there's, there, there are a number of rituals that Paul initially has to abide by, but then comes to eventually change in order to establish and to fight this this future jihad and, jihad and to make the planet into a more hospitable um, place into a greener place so they work towards this almost like utopian vision of the future in which they live on like a bounteous planet um, not dissimilar to like Caladan or something and this is like what they're all really working towards and to do that they have to move away from myth so I think I think sort of myth is a very interesting theme here like what do you guys think of this 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 theme in the book well I think it's interesting how these myths are planted by well they're all, they're planted by the Bene Gesserit and I think that yeah 
if he was writing a book, he could have written a whole book about the Bene Gesserit. Just their existence. We have a kind of space Illuminati comprised of only women who uh, are, you know, every the, the wife of every king is a Bene Gesserit. The wife of every count is a Bene Gesserit. Everyone in political power has a wife who is part of this secret shadow Illumin- space Illuminati. And this space Illuminati has been has some secret plan, some conspiracy that they have been trying to enact across countless and countless generations. And they're using uh, like crossbreeding and eugenics to try to make that happen. And it's um, it's just a it's such a paranoid view yeah. of religion and hmm. myth and even even cultural rituals you know what i mean this idea that we're not in control of our rituals they are planted by other people and not only that but they serve a large they signify something greater than themselves not in a religious sense but in a very grounded uh we do this because um it's for the sake of not something else, but someone else. Yeah. And yeah, when you break this stuff down, it's just Frank's world. Yeah. And it just fits with this world of June of like Trone Company and yeah. the guilds, these massive corporations who sort of run things. Um, so there's this sort of aristocratic front of like, you know, the houses are in charge, but really the houses are all just sort of fighting over, if I understand it correctly, like directorships and so forth in the Chone Company. And that's obviously why the spices. They're, they're fighting over stock ownership. Yes, yeah. Which is so interesting. Like they're, they're like the 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 emperor is the person who owns fifty one percent of Chome. I think that was laid out somewhere. You know, like I he, think he's he's an mm-hmm. emperor. Yes, but he's also just a CEO. He's the, he has the controlling share. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it's interesting because yeah. we have this idea of like a higher power. Uh, and many of the like relig- r- rituals and su- sort of superstitions and beliefs and ways, like the, the ways do not change. We have always done it this way. This is the way. And, you know, they're always saying things like this about just random things. Um, like, I think the most prominent one is that if you're going to take control of the CH, if someone calls you out, you have to fight them to the death. And the big change that Paul makes is by saying, no, I refuse to kill Stilgar mm-hmm. in order to become the leader of your group. Now, everyone knows I could kill Stilgar. I'm the most powerful man, man arguably, in the universe right now. Um, but I'm not going to do that because I wouldn't want to cut off my right hand is the way he says it. So he changes the rules to more, towards a more rational direction. Um, but in any case, there is this sort of... Many of their rituals are kind of ridiculous because it's just stories they've been told by ultimately corporations and these power interest groups that are trying to essentially just manipulate them for the sake of natural resources. But then they also worship the Shire Hlud, these massive sandworms who guard this spice. Now, this spice is the reason the gills... The Bene Gesserit are even interested in June because they have this spice, and yet this spice is protected by these massive uh, Shai Halud who worship in like a religious way by the Fremen. You know, they, they worship Shai Halud as gods, essentially. And that's a real power. That's not being created by the Bene Gesserit or, or by the, you know, groups. They, they just have the force of like Kant's sublime. You know, they're just such amazing creatures, so powerful, just such raw animal power that they are worshipped to that like gods. So, you know, the myth is like, maybe that complicates the idea a little bit, that all myth in this book is just cooked up. Like, there is some sense that there's a genuinely sacred creature in the Shai Halud. And it's interesting that that creature is the only creature presented in this book, which is not 
human mm. or an animal that is already found in real life Earth. well i guess it's just a big worm isn't it really like i mean we all grew up on tremors starting it is yeah but... yeah but 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 it does other things like like there, there's no there's no worms on yes. earth that create yeah. the spice or have these massive teeth or grow to be the size of football fields but there are yeah. uh segura cactuses there are those desert mice that they call muadib you know those are those are all <laughs> earth mm. plants and animals there's coffee there's you, you know what i mean and dunes themselves sand dunes yeah. themselves and there's there's like lore reasons for all of these things being actual earth species but it's also just interesting that the one mm. sacred thing does happen yeah. to be the one made up creature interesting i was thinking do you think cuz the the worm is sacred because of the spice or do you think the worm itself it is that sublime feeling seeing something that massive that, that incredible that old that powerful because what it produces is similar to what the Bene Gesserit want to produce in the Kwisatz Haderach, to be able to see, to see in the into the future and in the past. It's almost like an afterlife. Because when you take the spice, you can see we have special experiences that take you out of a normal life, that take you out of the present. And same with the Kwisatz Haderach, you um, or a Reverend Mother, you take in like the whole past uh, in that line of Reverend Mothers. So it's kind of a similar effect, or the the end goal. For these two sacred things, the Kwisatz Haderach and the Shai Hulud, the results seem to be almost the same. Well, I suppose. Well, I suppose these worms. Like one thing about the worms inherently, is just how old they are. Mm -hmm. They're ancient creatures, so I think they attain an almost divine quality because they're so old that it's as good as being eternal in a way, mm -hmm. because it stretches so far back that every generation can remember them, always having been there. So they're just sort of a. a, a fact of force of nature same with the reverend mother though yeah but no but you can trace yeah, yeah i maybe. guess the physical existence of the worm is is old so that's that's one difference. Yeah, i'm not sure but partly that they're able to create this spice as well i think just gives them a sort of like creative power almost like a godlike power mm -hmm. doesn't it they're the only things that i think create the spice aren't they yeah yeah like without no the worms, worms no, no spice, spice right yeah if i understand correctly so yeah that's it and since spice is the most powerful and you know essential element in the the in the universe and these sandworms the only thing that can create it that gives them a divine mm -hmm. quality as well because they create something from nothing in a way so there is something inherently godlike about the shy halud i think that it couldn't be just attributed down to like myth or you know esotericism or something or exotericism it's just there is something about them that is inherently sacred because they they are unique without them you lose so much and everyone dies without them as well, because once you stop taking spice, you die as well. So they're essential to many people's lives. That's true, yeah. If you're addicted to the spice, you have to have it or you will die. Do you... I don't understand the jihad. Like I don't understand why there needs to be a jihad and why it's impending. Yeah, I don't understand that either. I'm wondering if that's... If there's something... I know the Fremen are really tough. Like, they end up being... They can... Everyone assumes the Sardaukar, the emperor's um, armies, are the most powerful people that have ever existed. They're unbeatable. And then the Fremen take them out easily. Like they were mosquitoes almost. So I know that the Fremen are tough and that they can achieve a jihad. But I don't really understand why they want to. And I wonder if it's something to do with Dune has to exist. It's the most powerful substance because spice is the most powerful substance. So Dune is the most essential planet. Are the Fremen then the most essential people? I really don't get the jihad. Well, 
there's something that Paul always says, isn't there? Like that the the person who you have power over something insofar as you can destroy it. Yeah. And he's really trying to leverage that power by he explicitly threatens to destroy the spice if people don't do what he wants. Well, he does. Yeah, and he achieves that. But he, once he does that, the jihad seems to keep going. Like he's he's. But it, yeah, it doesn't answer the question of like why. I guess suppose that's more of how. Yeah. He can perpetrate the jihad. I, I see it as a political transformation. So like, it's it's a it's a revolution mm. in the true sense of the word. Whereas it's not like, oh, just another person has taken the throne. Essentially, they're seizing the means of production for themselves. Well, is what you mean. so so the the system as it stands right now is there's a king, there's an emperor, and ownership of the throne is passed on through family lines. Yeah. It, you know, it's a familiar, uh, you know, uh, medieval kind of kind of system mm. that we all know. But what what is happening? is yes paul does take the throne in the traditional transference of power the the, the ceremonial sense but marrying the princess but yeah. by having a jihad uh, yeah but by having a jihad essentially uh and this isn't talked about in the book at all because mm. the jihad happens off screen but i understand it to be basically him murdering all other contenders for the throne so it ends the it ends the ability for other people to juggle for power to to kind of make these moves so that uh a kind of absolutism can can be imposed upon the the order of the the empire but then do you think um, he's doing but, is he doing it intentionally then because in throughout the book he's trying to avoid it and he keeps acknowledging that even if he killed everyone here even if he if he purposely died the jihad will still go on he thinks about like how I think they're in a CH at one point and the, the um, Fremen are fighting with the emperor's men. And he thinks about even if I can get away from the jod, even if I can get away from the situation, it's still going to happen. People will still follow me even after I'm dead. May, does he change in a way? Like, is he now that he's won, is he still leading the jihad on purpose to avoid being overturned or is it still beyond his power? Like, is he is he become evil at the end? By saying yes, I want the jihad, or is it just going to happen no matter what? I take it as it's going to happen no matter what, in in mm -hmm. his name. So, like, if he dies, then he becomes a martyr. In his name, and the kind of fremen go off their planet and start, you know, to, you know, going to war against other planets. Uh, so he might as well be alive for it. I guess is the the interpretation I had of it, but maybe. Maybe you guys walked but then why does he want it though because he, he doesn't want it throughout the book and then he becomes the symbol for the jihad but he doesn't want it to happen so yeah i'm asking about his want what, what do you I, I think, think that the 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 personal desires of individuals is very um like uh it's inconsequential yeah. to this universe everything that happens is viewed as a kind of historical hmm. uh inevitable hmm. historical development that has precedent because other historical events yeah. brought it into fruition, but yeah, I, I I don't think yeah. I think it's clear as well from like the form of the book, isn't it? With those with those preludes, with these constant interludes, sorry, from the the, the tales of Muad'Dib, the collected tales of Muad'Dib, and the history of the Muad'Dib and so forth, written by Princess Irulan. You're very aware that you're reading historical events. Yeah, you know, you're constantly being reminded of that fact. Yeah. that you're, you're you know you're you're looking 
reading historical events. And I think, again, I think that goes back to like my sort of mixed feelings about this book. Of like, I love, I love it when I talk about it and think back at it. When I'm reading it, I find it a bit alienating. I think it is because of this it was like historical aspect where it's like I feel like I'm reading like a, a, I almost feel like I'm reading spark notes of the original book sometimes. You know, I feel like it's just telling me what needs to be known at that moment and then just moves on to the next thing, almost like I'm reading a Wikipedia page or something. And that's how it sort of feels to me at times. And I think maybe there is that historical aspect to it that maybe contributes to that a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it's it's literally like reading a Wikipedia page. I don't get me wrong. It's, 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 it's a great book, but yeah, it, it does leave me feeling a little bit alienated in that regard. And I wonder if it is due to that sort of sense of it being historical, that sense of it not being happening right now that I can't get absorbed in it. Oh, I'm yeah. not even supposed to get absorbed in it in a way. I was laughing because there is a Dune wiki. It even has its own Wikipedia. Um, I have been I have been exploring Dune wiki. I, I, I've got to be honest. So maybe it's um, I I noticed on, on Dune wiki that um, in one of the future books there's going to be a character that I'm sure is very popular in China called uh, Ganima Atreides. Ganima. Oh, oh, popular that's in funny. China. Ganima. Oh yes. Now I see. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to transliterate that, yes, that will go directly. Sorry, sorry to our Chinese listeners. <laughs> Didn't mean to. Uh, I'll wash my mouth at this. <laughs> so the the history element is there's when you mentioned him being kind of a um, Oedipus character earlier, and I think there's an interesting moment where that happens again when he takes the the water of life or the water of death and goes. Um, he's unconscious for three weeks. This is a special liquid that comes from drowning one of the makers, one of the Shai Halud before it's huge. And he ingests it like a um, reverend mother of the Fremen should do. But it would usually kill someone who's not a reverend mother. And so he goes under for three weeks. Then as soon as they get him conscious again, he just dips his whole hand into it. First, he just took like a little, little bit. And now he dips his whole hand and just like drowns himself in it. And then he goes in again and he says, mother, take me to that forbidden place that the Bene Gesserit are so afraid of going to and can never go to. So she likes takes takes him to this abyss. And then uh, the Reverend Mother, who the old Reverend Mother, who's trapped in there, he says, if you look for me, I'll be there in that abyss looking back at you. So in all of these, like he, he, history is happening to Paul and maybe he is trying to avoid these histories. But if he sees the future... I guess he can't see how he's going to die, and he can't see how he can stop the jihad. That dark spot inside of the Bene Gesserit is interesting, just as like a a storytelling mechanism, law of the universe mechanism. Okay. So like citing, I guess, other books, because it's not really explicated here. The These, these women, Bene Gesserit women... They can only see into the past of hmm. their the women in their line. So there, there's like there's. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is Frank Herbert creates a sexist universe where women can <laughs> only draw on the knowledge of women. But with Paul, hmm. he that that black spot that they are afraid to look at inside of them, that's the lives and experiences of their the males in their line oh so when he says he'll be there looking back out at her he's talking about like literally i, I mean i believe literally in the sense of that he's a man but also my understanding of it is that as the quizach quizach's 
Quizats. Oh my god. Quizats Hadarak. Quizats. Quizats Hadarak. He can look anywhere within himself. He can look at he can look at the lives of the males in his genetics and the females of his genetics, and he's the only one uh-huh. who can do that. Which, to me, kind of brings us back into Frank Herbert, the 1960s San Francisco um, <laughs> kind of, you know, the guy. The guy, you know, like, oh yeah, man, there's there's women's knowledge and there's men's knowledge, and it's it's all tied back to genetics, man. Like, like, like the feminine and the masculine. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. The masculine principle and the feminine principle, the yin and yang. Man. You know, like the, this isn't really a way we talk about or think about uh, masculinity and femininity today. It's like a. it's just a it's a different it's a different discourse. It's a different way of viewing the world. But it is it is a, a big part of of Frank's world. And I think it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's also interesting because it's not these parts of the books don't feel like science fiction. And mm. even if he can use science words such as like genes, you know, <laughs> mm. uh, DNA, whatever, to explain how this works, it doesn't feel like science. It feels like magic. Mm. Well, it's it's still cool. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it definitely comes from this more almost again this San Francisco overlap period, this more Eastern uh, view, um, in which like I watched a, a very interesting documentary um, recently called "The Yogis of Tibet." It's a great documentary, and it purports to um, reveal for posterity the ways of the at that time soon to be obliterated by the Chinese army, uh, Tibetan Buddhists, um, most famously the Dalai Lama. And the idea is they made this documentary to film their practices. And sort of this documentary says that, you know, while Western man was sort of like changing the world around him, the, you know, the yogis were working on internal cultivation and internal practices to like prolong their life and to enter different states of consciousness. And I think there's some idea here in which this is more like technology in the interior introverted sense of like kind of a set of like, not not a practice, but uh, a, a way of insight you know, like Vipassana of insight. I think this idea that the spice, um, going to this different planet and having the spice can give you this hidden insight that's going to complete you and it's going to give you, you know, access to this other world. That very much is another San Francisco, you know, idea that is very, very prevalent in this book, I think. More so than the idea of like Western technology. It's like, it's an easy, uh, easy to replace spice with lsd yeah Frank, exactly you know i mean that's what spice is i mean spice he's is not an LSD, lsd proponent plus, oil plus you know all these other things but yeah i yeah. think those spice is interesting as well i think like the spice is a really interesting motif because it's very much like a litmus test of like <clears throat> what kind of person are you is de- determined by what you would do with the spice you know like are you the sort of person or are you the sort of culture that will see the spice as a kind of uh religious uh, thing that can give you insights and can connect you to your ancestors or is it this money-making tool that can be used to explore the universe and to establish new colonies i think it, it, yeah i think it's a very interesting device for that reason <laughs> so it can be lsd certainly and it is i think there, there seems to be a normative element which we're supposed to be using it more for insight than we are to 
dominate and make profit. I think there's, that's quite clear. Let's actually break down all the ways spice is used in this story, because you, you mentioned a couple of them, but let's see. So for the emperor's house, spice is something that makes them live forever, or if not forever, extends the human lifespan by hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. For the guild, spice is what allows them, spice is, is literally oil for them. So they have spice, they can transport goods from planet to planet, people from planet to planet, and they can rake in massive amounts of profit by, you know, adding on taxes and levies and, and you know, making themselves financially um, very affluent. Uh, then for people like the... Well, like the Bene Gesserit, for example, they're using uh, it to help them achieve their um, aim to, you know, establish the Kwisatz Haderach, which is really their way of maintaining yeah. the kind of power without actually getting destroyed by power, actually having to like suffer the consequences of power because it's always someone else who's going to fight on their behalf. So they're yeah. using it in and that it's a kind way. Of using it as ability to pass messages. Yeah, but they're using it instrumentally still. You know, they're not using it, in, you know, they're using, using yeah. it instrumentally for the sake of this goal. Um, so all those ways they're using it are kind of like instrumental ways of using it. They're using it for the sake of something else. But is there anyone who uses it, uh, yeah. do you think, for for its own sake? I think one thing I think of is like the Fremen and the worship of the sand, the sandworms, the Shai Halud. And they don't seem to use it instrumentally. They just, it's just life for them. They just live on it. I, I mean, I think it is, you. so it is life for them. It's in their food, etc. So I suppose instrumental in the sense but that But then when the life. reverend, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when the reverend mother changes the, I forget exactly the word for it, the maker's water. Yeah, the water so of the highly life toxic, concentrated, the water of life, yeah. The highly concentrated version of spice. She changes it and it turns it into a party drug, more or less. Yeah. Like it's a way for them to the lose their sense of individuality. Yeah. yeah. And they have these orgies. Frank. <laughs> uh, <laughs> by the way, as we record the next six books, I'm just going to keep a, a Frank counter of times <laughs> in which I read a line and then I just go, Frank. <laughs> um, there, there is one other way I wanted to point out, which is for these kind of low level people, um, I don't, I don't want to call them warlords. Maybe I will call them warlords, but kind of like the Duke Atreides or Baron Harkonnen. People who are kind of pitted as opposite moral figures, but mm -hmm. really occupy the same space of low-level houses or high-level houses that are vying for power in a very grounded everyday sense. Uh, they're drinking spice coffee. They're eating spice as a literal spice on their food. And it's not a drug for them. It's not like... A party drug for them it's you know it lengthens their life but they're not addicted to it in the sense of how like if you know the fremen stop eating spice they die hmm. so everyone has this relationship to spice but it's its meaning is different for yeah. every person so in that sense it is uses. just a great i think it's a great fundamentally a great storytelling device because it just reveals everything while in itself i don't know like what what is it in itself is almost irrelevant it's it's all about what what it can do for you and again i think that is the theme of the book in general this idea of um, almost like the human inability to see natural phenomena as anything other than a resource to be used for our own purposes. And I think maybe the one contradiction to that is, and that's why I mentioned like the fact that they're all using spice instrumentally. The one exception to this is the, the, the I think the worship of the Shai Halud, this true, like sort of insight into it, kind of almost true religion there, where the, the worms are revered for their own sake. It's, and oh like spice is life itself so mm -hmm. they're revealing revealing almost like 
the ability to stay alive itself, no matter how tough living actually is. Like, they live in incredibly harsh conditions, but they choose to affirm life and they choose to live and, uh, you know, live with a great mm. amount of passion. And they're worshipping these creatures, these Shai Halud, which give them life in the sense of giving them the spice, but also constantly threaten to kill them whenever they're trying to harvest the spice. So they live in such a peculiar, like, hand-to-mouth way. But yeah, they they seem much more connected to the actual landscape. They don't. They seem almost able to see some things, at least, like the Shai Halud is something other than just resources for their own use. But I think largely most characters in this book can't think that way. I, I want to pick up where you said it tries to kill them when they harvest it, because it is important to note that harvesting spice is mm. only dangerous for the Harkonnen. It's not really dangerous for the Fremen. It, I mean, it's inherently dangerous, but... They know what they're um, doing. The 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 kind of meaning I walked away from this with mm. was it's dangerous yeah, for yeah, the yeah. person who tries to use it who's out of sync with the the rhythm of the world, mm-hmm. so to speak, with the natural ecology. Uh, for someone like the Fremen, they are living hand in hand. Uh, like it, you could you can imagine um, Frank the 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 sixties man, the sixties San Francisco Frank, being like, oh yeah, you know these corporations they come in and. Yeah, being out out there in the wilderness is difficult for them, and you can die out in the woods. But for someone like you know, maybe like a '60s vision of like a Native American or like a, a Gary Schneider or something. Yeah, like a Gary Schneider. You know, oh yeah, we can live out in the woods for a month, and it's it's nothing. It's not even dangerous, or you know, the dangers have been mitigated yeah. because you're naturally in tune with the cycles and rhythms of the world. Again, a very Eastern concept as well. Sure, sure. So they've been alive with the, you know, is the kingdom, you know, in the right element or is it time for a change, you know? Well, they're trying to change it. Why are they trying to change it? The Fremen want to, once... Well, they are trying to change Yeah, Liet Kynes comes and starts to teach them, oh, we can make plants happen. We can trap moisture. We can uh, change this into a green planet. If they know that their life is superior because of this relationship of a harsh, harsh, harsh existence and worshipping... Shai Hulud, um, why are they going to change all that? They're going to preserve some of the desert so they can still train themselves in harsh conditions and still have the spice and Shai Hulud. But why do they want to live in a soft existence? Well, and why do they want water fat bodies now? Yeah. Yeah. Water fat flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, another another set of characters in this book who are really strengthened by harsh conditions are the Sardaukar, the, the emperor's army. Who were raised on uh, Seleucus Secundus, which is another equally, almost equally harsh planet. Mm, eventually, they um, are not at first. This idea that harshness makes you. What's that? Sorry. Uh, eventually, they are. I think they—that's a plan that they're trying to put in. I don't think they're originally on Seleucus Secundus. The Sardaukar. Yeah. Well, it's a prison planet, isn't it? No, no, well, it's they're a prison from Seleucus Secundus. I thought that was a development later that they're planning on doing. I don't think they're initially from Seleucus Secundus. I think that they're talking about using Seleucus Secundus to bring up new soldiers. I don't know if that's the no, same. I think they're always no. from Seleucus Secundus. Yeah, no, they are. They are. It's it's revealed mm-hmm. that uh, the emperor's army comes from the prison planet, and it was uh, mm. it was uh, part of what made the emperor uh, suspicious of the Baron was when he told mm-hmm. one of the emperor's men, possibly Count Fenring. Uh, that he wanted to make Arrakis like Seleucus Secundus, which made the emperor oh. then suspicious of him as, you know, when you create a kind of 
uh, battle world, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, that, that allows these kind of harsh people to, um, be cultivated. Uh, it's, it's seen as like, okay, you're building a rival power. And sorry, Jean, I interrupted. No, I was just going to remark that it's it's interesting. There's sort of contradiction there of like, you need these harsh conditions to create strong warriors. But then when you win all the wars against everyone else, then you cease to have such harsh conditions and then you mm. become weaker. I think this is maybe a, a, a sort of a, a contradiction that the book picks up on and sort of plays with a little bit. Yeah. Um, which again, I think it's very interesting. Like the book deal does deal with a lot of interesting like themes of this idea yeah. of, you know, what makes conditions make you strong. And then the contradiction mm-hmm. that, you know, it's like the classic situation of like the person who gets rich. As we continue to read, let's pay attention to Arrakis as a character. So like Paul's a character, uh, Irulan is a character, but what, how is Arrakis um, conceived of? First, it's a desert at the start of this book. But then John, like you said, it it's kind of revealed to be an Eden in a sense it's it's the perfect world everything is in harmony the only thing wrong with it is these kind of outsiders coming in so if and when they do change arrakis if they add greenery what happens is it still viewed as an eden is it possible to have your cake and uh eat it too you know uh yeah these are these are things we need to be paying attention to well, I want to see when we read more too is like how, um, what is good leadership and what is a good person at the helm? It seemed to kind of change a little bit with Paul sure. by the end, yeah. where I wasn't exactly certain if he's good or not. Uh, I want to see if it changes again. So there's a quote in this book that I actually wrote down because I thought it was so, uh, it was just so frank. But basically in this book, they, they symbolize politics as a fist. And by that, they mean it has five fingers. <laughs> five knuckle uh, shuffle. The learning of the wise, the justice of the great, the prayers of the righteous, the valor of the brave, and a ruler who knows the art of rule. Classic fist. So you can kind of imagine the character counting off each one of them. Uh, if they're holding up the right hand, they're going pinky, ring finger, middle finger, you know. And then when you get to the last one, it's the thumb, the ruler who knows the art of ruling. And when you have that, you have a fist which you're then going to, you know, punch mm. someone with. <laughs> and um, I don't know, it, like, I when, when I think of this book, I think of, it's not the plot machinations I think of. It, yes, it is the world I think of, but I also think of uh, Frank, the uh, depository of pithy sayings. Frank, the kind of, um, oh, uh, what are they called? Not epigrams, but um, not Cohen's. You know what I'm saying? This guy, this guy has a, this guy has a, a back, yeah, just a back pocket saying for everything he could possibly want. Oh and, yeah, and he's just littered the book with them, and I, I kind of love it. You know, <laughs> the, the there is a, there's one final point I want to ask you guys about, which is kind of the 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 artistry here the the like how do you think this book was written because we already talked about the idea of a kind of self-conscious undercutting of a hero's journey Mm. we've talked about the idea of world building but then there's also there's just there's just 
all this other stuff <laughs> that's yeah. packed in here. With more than four ways to tell the future. <laughs> it's like a hoarder's book. You know what I mean? Hey, don't you speak about my mother that way. Yeah. There's 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 non-English languages packed in here. Arabic, uh, Latin, one of them. Uh, like at one point they say, "Oh yes, in the old, in the old languages, this word means mm-hmm. um, the ability to see something you want but not reach out for it." And then I looked up that word <laughs> in German, and it actually didn't mean, mean that at all. Was it just like Hagen Dazs? With Frank, it was like, "Yes, as the people say, Hagen Dazs, <laughs> the great food of our tradition." It was. It was strong. like. I, w- I wish I'd written down which work it was. Yeah, it, it was it, it was a word that they were like, oh yes, this word means the ability to hold something apart from yourself that you want, but not reach out. It's like a self-control thing. But when I looked it up, hmm. the literal meaning of the word was like, like holding a bow in tension, like a bow and arrow in tension, but not releasing. But the usage of that word in a non-literal sense was the ability to properly lay out beats of a story and hold the story in tension and draw out that tension without releasing it. So, you know, in a poetic sense, yes, this word could mean what Frank said, but in a real sense in, in, you know, the world we live in that he's referring to, because he's referring to our world when he says, Oh, the ancient languages, uh, the word itself does not mean that. There's a number of ways to read that, you know. But yeah, why, why, why let the truth ruin a good story? Exactly, know? exactly. It doesn't feel malicious. It feels like someone said this to Frank offhand one day, and he wrote it down and said, "Oh yeah, put that in the book." You know? <laughs> yeah. See you guys in a couple of weeks for Dune Messiah. Dune Messiah, the one we've all been waiting for. Hey, hey yes. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.